recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christian Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Today is Friday, June 21st, 2013. We will be presenting Acts chapters 6 and 7. We won't get all the way through 7. We'll get about a third of the way through 7. It's a pretty long chapter. I don't know if next week I'll finish Acts chapters 7 and 8, but that will be my endeavor. I have a few um, diversions tonight. I'd like to say that I finally posted Clifton Emma Heiser's May-June mailing to the, to, to the Emma Heiser website at christogenia.org. I apologize for being so late. This week I also finally published the May Saxon Messenger, and I apologize again for being so late. I've had several setbacks the last month, but that's okay. We keep moving ahead. Clifton publishes Watchman's Teaching Letters 181 and 182. We're almost at the big 200. I hope Clifton puts out 300 or more. He also is doing a series, and it has a sort of, I don't know, it's almost a clumsy title. You have to think about it for a second. Wolves declare their sheep-killing plans forgeries. Clifton tried to say a very lot in a little space. It's basically a series with um, various testimonies concerning the Jews, the eternal enemies of Christ and God, and the eternal enemies of our civilization and our race, and how they like to deny the evidence which points to their crimes. They do it all the time. They consistently endeavor to silence all political opposition. We had another taste of that ourselves just last week. I host NSEuropa.com or .org if you want to go there. It's the same site. And and DerSturmer.org and a few related websites. I've been hosting them for a year and a half now because the gentleman who has developed them is consistently being closed down by various web hosts. I was able to keep his website on HostGator for about 15 months, possibly, since I've been hosting them. And HostGator shut them down Thursday because of a perceived violation of the terms of service. HostGator, of course, is lying. It's more likely that some Jew cried, Oi! And HostGator promptly dropped to their knees and did whatever the Jew desired. So HostGator sent me a notice and turned the sites down. They're up and running. They were only down for three days. I have them on the new server. A new server apart from any of my own websites. I would rather keep them that way for various reasons, various obvious reasons. But, um, well, we'll see how long they last in their new home. And I'll keep um, publishing articles, small articles. I have a small article on a mine comp site because these things, are, that these websites are mostly related to World War II history. I have a small article on a mine comp site on a front page with a copy of HostGator's letter to me. And um, I'm sure nobody will care. Nobody will care that, that, that um, websites, which NSEuropa.org is, is fairly innocuous. It doesn't really say much about the Jews. It, it presents um, 
some documentary videos, it, it presents a lot of original material produced by the National Socialists in, in the 1920s and 30s, items that should be of historical interest, no matter your perspective on, on, on 20th century history. These items should be of historical interest. Speeches from Hitler, speeches from Goebbels. Uh, I mean, Calvin University publishes a lot of these same things, but the Jews don't try to shut down Calvin University. And, and they publish these things, the German Propaganda Archive, it is a treasure trove, I, I believe, and, and um, it, it's a very, it's also a very objective presentation of original material from from the period. As I see, NS Europa is a very objective source of the same of much of the same material, and, and a lot of material that Calvin, of course, doesn't have available. So the Jews got NS Europa shut down, and I put it back up on Sunday. We'll see how long it lasts this time. I'm sure they're probably chasing down other sites I host, and, and I'm not going to talk about my own, but I wouldn't doubt it. I try to keep them as academic as possible. But the Jews don't care about, uh, about scholarship. The Jews care about shutting down all opposing voices, all opposing voices, any voice that opposes the Zionist agenda, or I should say Zionist agenda, any voice that opposes Jewish world hegemony, they seek to shut down, as a matter of fact. Any voice that supports true Christianity, they seek to shut down, or any semblance of it. So that, that's the way it is, and, and that's the beast we have to deal with. When Christ told the apostles they would not go through all of the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes, that was in relation to the persecution of the apostles. I'd like to say that when they persecute you at one Internet service provider, flee to another. You will not run out of Internet service providers until the Son of Man comes. I pray the Jews will have to buy them all. That's the way it is. They probably will. I'm sure they can. They print the money, right? The subject of the May Saxon, Saxon Messenger that was just released is universalism. It's the theme throughout the first four or five articles of the, of the magazine. I pray that it's distributed far and wide. The distribution seems to be growing, and more and more PDFs are downloaded from the website every month. I did a program on Tuesday with John Friend here on TalkShoe. It concerned America's Christian founding. There were some people who would insist that the revolution, the rebellion against the king, what was a conspiracy by wealthy landowners, and, and they were basically thugs, thugs who... who um, the tail wags the dog, right? He, he considers the founding fathers to be thugs who absconded with the entire nation, leading the revolution all by themselves and, and breaking from England, and they only represented 3% of the population, and they were basically a gang of crooks and criminals who, who tried to force all the nation, all the people of the nation into debt slavery. That's a real, um, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories that have a lot of, 
of weight to them and, and certainly a lot of truth, that is not one of them. It's actually a very simplistic, basically um, moronic view of history because it totally discounts the fact, the known fact, that, and, and, and this is recorded in a million sources, that all of the state legislatures of the 13 sovereign states, and they were considered sovereign states all the way up to the Civil War, the, the War of Northern Aggression, Lincoln's War. The independent states were considered sovereign nations of their own right up until that war. The conspiratorial view of the American Revolution discounts the fact that all of the delegates to the Articles of all of the delegates to the Continental Congress, starting in 1774, were sent there by the state legislatures of the various sovereign states with their approbation at their commission. They were sent to the Continental Congresses. The state legislatures, of course, being the body politic at that time, which was most closely elected by the people of each state, they sent the delegates to the Continental Congress. Everything that was done, they had the opportunity to approve or deny, to become a signatory to or not. And the same is true of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention. The same is true of the Articles of Confederation. The conspiratorial view of the revolution totally discounts the role of the various, the 13 various state legislatures, colonial legislatures, if you want to call them that. So, it's, to me, it's a ridiculous view of history, and, and it's for simpletons. That's my opinion. I'm not going to fall for it. And I pray that you don't either. With this, we will commence with our presentation of the Book of Acts, chapters 6 and 7, starting with verse 6. I'm not going to summarize what I've done in the first five chapters. We've done, that. We've done enough of that the past seven weeks. And in those days, with the multiplying of students, there was a murmuring among the Hellenists towards the Hebrews, because in a daily administration... Their widows were neglected. The phrase, in those days, tells us only that what is transpiring is sometime after the first Pentecost. It is evident that a functioning Christian community has been established. Many of those who have come to this community since that Pentecost have sold their farms and their estates, things which usually take some time to accomplish. You don't sell an estate overnight. As it was established here in the very first segment of our presentation of Acts, and as we hope to explain again when we arrive at the appropriate portions of the narrative, the chronological details left to us in Acts and in the epistles of Paul, when compared to what we know from history, tell us that Paul's conversion must have most likely taken place in 34 A.D., we will illustrate the possibilities, probably when we get to Acts chapter 15. 
And therefore, the events related in these earlier chapters of Acts all transpired over the two-year period which began with the Pentecost of 32 AD, which we, is, which we have established here as the year in which Christ was crucified. And that is illustrated and elucidated in our Luke presentation when we presented chapters 2 and 3 of that gospel. The word which the King James Version renders as Grecian here is Hellenistes, Strong's number 1675. Hellenist, one who follows Greek lifestyles and customs as opposed to, in this, in this case, Hebrew customs. The distinction is not one of nation or religion here, but solely a distinction, a distinction of tradition. For Peter hadn't yet had his vision, and therefore the gospel was not yet taken to non-Judeans, a fact established by Peter's own words as they are recorded in Acts chapter 15. While men of different religion, I'm sorry, while men of different regions are mentioned in various places in the early chapters of Acts, such as at Acts chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, and here in this chapter at verse 9, the context always informs us that these are Judean men from those different regions. For there was already a great distribution of Judeans, as we illustrated very recently, I believe with Acts chapter 4, whether they were Israelite or Canaanite, Edomite Judeans is immaterial in this regard. There was already a great distribution of Judeans who had habitations throughout the Roman world. <coughs> Excuse me. And several weeks ago, we cited Josephus's Antiquities, especially Book 14, Line 115, and Josephus's Wars, Book 7, in that regard. And many of these visited Jerusalem often for feasts and for other reasons. So we see them gathered here at the Pentecost, Judeans from throughout the inhabited world. We discussed this diaspora of the Judeans, which is not to be confused, as the Jews love to confuse it, with the ancient and much larger diaspora of Israel and Judah, we discussed this at great length here while presenting Acts chapter 4. While in this biblical context, the lexicons attempt to limit the use of the word Hellenist to language, the New Testament lexicons, it can be shown both from the biblical accounts and from the manuscripts and from archaeology, and we will do a little of that later on, that many Judeans commonly spoke Greek. The term must indicate more than language. And the Hellenists were likely following Greek manners of dress, Greek manners of diet, and possibly even some of their own philosophies, some of the Hellenists, some of the Greek philosophies. Such Hellenists are also mentioned in Acts chapters 9 and 11. Since these were all Israelites converting to Christianity, we see that they were discriminating among each other on the basis of their custom so far as to neglect old women in their daily care. In 
It is evident in many places that Judeans who had clung to the ancient traditions despised even their own kinsmen who did not, and here is one example. Verse 2. Then the twelve, summoning the multitude of students, said, It is not acceptable to us, abandoning the word of Yahweh to serve tables. The role of the apostles within the community was to preach the gospel of Christ, continually edifying the body of Christ, which Yahweh was collecting in that place, or steadfastly persisting in prayer, as we see here in verse 4. This, too, is a model example for Christians today. That as Paul illustrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the body has many members, but not all members have the same function, and neither can one member serve every function. Therefore, we see the delegation of authority by the apostles as recorded in verse 3, where it says, But you consider, brethren, you consider the apostles speaking to the people, the people who were complaining. Seven accredited men from among you, full of spirit and wisdom, whom we shall appoint over this business. Some translation notes. I'm going to have a lot of translation notes tonight. The codices Alexandrinus are from Syria, and the majority text have holy spirit, rather than full of spirit, full of the holy spirit. The Christogenian New Testament follows the 4th century papyrus P.A., and the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Beze in this regard. The pronoun in the phrase whom we shall appoint must refer not to the apostles only, but to the apostles and the people collectively. This is evident because the apostles did not ordain men to these recommended positions unilaterally, but rather they asked the people to consider who it was whom they would have to fill such positions. This is the same model which Paul later used. This is the Christian model. For example, when it came time for the assemblies of Greece to appoint a minister of the funds which they were contributing to the poor at Jerusalem, much later, perhaps 20-some-odd years later, for which see 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 19, Paul had the assemblies themselves choose somebody to administer those funds. Paul didn't take it onto himself to do it. Paul did not impose an appointment upon those assemblies. He had the assemblies choose one from among their own whom they wanted to entrust with that position. 2 Corinthians 8.19 Christian assemblies should pick their own ministers or servants, which is what the word minister really means. And here it is clear that such an example is the original apostolic model. Verse 4, and we shall persist in prayer and in the attendance of the word. The prayer is probably just as much for guidance as it is for things such as favor and protection and the healing of the sick. The attendance of the word is ostensibly the study of Scripture just as much as it is the expounding of the gospel. Verse 5. And this word was satisfactory before all of the multitude. And they selected Stephanus, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, 
and Philippus, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a convert of Antioch, or Antiochus, who stood before the ambassadors and praying, they laid the hands upon them. Of course, Antioch was a, um, a large community of Christians developed at Antioch, which becomes um, prominent in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 14, I believe. All seven of these men's names are Greek names. The people that came to the apostles were Hellenists, right? All seven of these names are from common Greek words. Stephanos is crowned. Philippus is a lover of horses. Prochorus is before the dance. I don't know if I'd want that name as a man in today's world. Nicanor is victorious. Timon is valuable. Parmenas means enduring or abiding. And Nicolaus is victory over people or conqueror of people. Now, there are some people, and, and this is a side note, I don't even have it written into my presentation. There are some people who would, and, and this was also evident in the very early Christian writers of the 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries. There are some people who would want to connect this Nicolaos to the use of the term Nicolaitans found in a revelation. It's my opinion that that is mere speculation. It was then, and it is now. That's my opinion. I haven't read anything from the early Christian writers which convinces me of the connection. Even though several of them attempted to make it, their testimonies do not agree. And I discussed that at length in my presentation of Revelation chapter 2. Because their testimonies do not agree, I doubt the connection entirely. Here the adoption of the Greek language by many of the Judean people is first clearly evident, as it is also in many other places of Acts, in chapter 3, verse 2, 4, verse 6, 9, verse 33. Six of these men were certainly born as Judeans. Because of the use of the word proselytos, proselyte, convert, usually proselyte in the King James Version. It may be argued that Nicolaus was not born as a Judean, which is the usual interpretation. However, in the first century, Judean was not properly a racial distinction, but one of nationality or religion, since Judea itself was only a multi-ethnic political entity, a polyglot province of Rome. Edomites, Israelites, other Canaanites, Syrians, Romans, Greeks. Antioch, being a Hellenistic city, if Nicolaos were a Greek, most Greek tribes being descended from the Israelites dispersed in antiquity, that can be established, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, real quick. And if he were circumcised, then he was just as much a Judean as any natural-born Judean. On the other hand, it is possible here that the word proselytos in this context 
may describe a Judean of Antioch who had been a Hellenist and had recently come over to Christianity, a convert of Antioch, from Hellenistic Judaism to Christianity. And the word would apply just as well. In any case, there is no reason to dispute the testimony of Peter in reference to his converting the household of Cornelius as related in Acts chapter 10, chapters 10 and 11, and we will expound on that at length in the coming weeks, Yahweh willing, that he was the first to convert the uncircumcised to Christ. It is this which he refers to in Acts chapter 15 and verse 6, where he says, Then the ambassadors and the elders gathered together to see concerning this account. And there being much debate, Peter arising said to them, Men, brethren, you know that from the first days Yahweh has chosen among you through my mouth for the nations to hear the account of the good message and to believe. Now, the events of Acts chapters 10 and 11 happened very early in the spreading of the gospel, probably in that first couple-year period, and the accounts of Acts chapter 15 happened at least 14 years after Paul's conversion. So Peter said at the first. He goes on to say in Acts 15, verse 8, And Yahweh, who knows the heart, has accredited them, meaning those non-Judeans, those uncircumcised, to give the Holy Spirit justice also to us. So Nicolaus was almost certainly circumcised before being a convert of Antioch, before coming to Christianity. No, regardless of whether you want to take that word proselutos to mean that he became, that he came into Judaism first before he's found in Christianity, or he converted from Hellenistic Judaism to Christianity, it's immaterial. Peter was the first one to convert the uncircumcised. The laying on of hands, which we see here, the apostles laid hands upon laid the hands upon these men who were appointed. The laying on of hands was also a part of the sacrifice rituals, and in the passing of judgment in a capital offense, which is seen in Leviticus twenty four fourteen. So there were several uses for the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands in this sense is first seen in Scripture in Deuteronomy thirty four nine where the death of Moses is recorded. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him. And the children of Israel hearkened unto him, and did as Yahweh commanded Moses. So in this sense, it is symbolic of the passing of one's godly authority, one's favor, or one's spiritual gifts, to another, to a successor, or to a fellow worker. Verse 7. And the word of Yahweh was magnified, and the number of students in Jerusalem multiplied exceedingly, and a great crowd of the priests were obedient in the faith. Rather than priests, the Codex Sinaiticus has Judeans, which is interesting. 
there are many ancient testimonies to this which which um would read priests which disagree with the Sinaiticus. The Sinaiticus is usually a very trustworthy manuscript though. If a significant number of true Levitical priests had submitted to Christianity, that may have proven the greatest risk to the temple authorities since they're role models for the people. Most effectively undermining the presumed authority of the Sadducee high priests, that would explain the persecution of Christians to come. Verse 8. And Stephanus, or Stephen, full of favor and power, had done wonders and great signs among the people. The Codex Beze inserts at the end of this sentence the words, through the name of Prince Yahshua Christ, an embellishment. I guess they didn't want to leave Jesus out of it, right? The majority text, and therefore the King James Version, has faith rather than favor. Our text is in agreement with the 3rd century papyrus P45, the 4th century papyrus P8, and the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, Beze, in the 5th century O175. It is fitting. In the most ancient Hebrew tradition, where names always mean something, where names, the meaning of names always has a profound implication in the context of the narrative. It is fitting that Stephanus, would be destined to be the first Christian martyr. His name means crowned. Psalm 132. Yahweh is sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall, shall also sit upon thy throne forevermore. From a message to the assembly at Smyrna, the name Smyrna refers to the oil of anointing at Revelation 2.10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer, as Stephen, here the martyr, did not fear the enemies of Christ. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. For the message. To the assembly of Philadelphia. A name which means brotherly love. At Revelation 3, verses 10 and 11. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly, hold fast that which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. These two assemblies are the only assemblies of the seven addressed in the Revelation by Christ who are not criticized for anything.
Verse 9. Then there arose some of those from the assembly hall called of the freedmen and of the Kerenians, men from Cyrene, a Greek colony, inhabited by many of the later Hellenistic diaspora of Judeans, and Alexandrians, where there were also many Judeans dwelling, both Edomite and Israelite, ostensibly, and of those from Colicia, and that's where Paul of Tarsus was from, Tarsus was in Colicia, and Asia, and the codices Alexandrinus and Beze want this reference to Asia, the reference being to Asia Minor, of course, to the southwestern portion of Anatolia, or modern Turkey, which was all Greek and Celtic at the time, for the most part, disputing with Stephanus, yet they were not able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Where the text has, and the spirit by which he spoke, the Codex Beze has a long interpolation, and it reads, and the Holy Spirit in which he spoke, by which for them to be censured by him with all frankness, therefore they were not able to meet face to face with the truth. Of course, the Codex Beze doesn't have any support in this by any of the other man ancient manuscripts, and it has a lot of such interpolations. I endeavor to mention the, 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 the more significant ones. For a brief description of what some, what some scholars believe to be this very assembly hall, the synagogue of the Libertines, as the King James Version translates it. Or if not, then at least one which was certainly quite similar. I will read from a sidebar to an article concerning the Israeli Antiquities Authority. That's unfortunate, but that's the, the, the state of archaeology journals today. Which appeared in Biblical Archaeology Review magazine of July, August 2003 on page 25. It's entitled The Theodotus Inscription. <clears throat> Hundreds of synagogues stood in ancient Jerusalem before their destruction by Titus's Roman forces in 70 AD. In one of them hung the following Greek inscription, carved prominently into the 25 by 17 inch limestone slab, and I will put a picture of that slab when I post this, content, this podcast on Christogenia. And it reads, the inscription reads, Theodotus, son of Vetenus, or Wetenus maybe, priest and synagogue leader, son of a synagogue leader, grandson of a synagogue leader, rebuilt this synagogue for the reading of the law and the teaching of the commandments and the hostelry rooms and baths for the lodging of those who have need from abroad. Now we know why Paul of Tarsus in his travels, whatever town he went to, he went directly to the local assembly hall of the Judeans first because he could expect to find these amenities here. The Judeans did that, especially abroad, because they endeavored to keep the law when they traveled. And they couldn't keep the law in the pagan lodgings. It couldn't be done. So they had to have their own lodgings. So they attached 
little motels to their assembly halls so that Judean travelers from the entire Roman world could find a place where they, where they could keep their own laws and traditions, right? Of course, at one time, that was probably good. And after the Christian era, I'm sure it worked. Well, well it worked out with the will of God. I guess the tares were just as contained, right? Those who rejected Christianity. The Edomite Jews, for the most part. It, meaning the synagogue of Theodotus, it was established by his forefathers, the elders and Simonides. The fact that the language of the inscription is Greek, and I'm still quoting from the article, Biblical Archaeology Review, not Hebrew, and its allusion to those who have need from abroad, suggests that this synagogue was used by Jews, and, and it should read Judeans, of course, from the diaspora, from the Hellenistic diaspora, and that it housed large numbers of visiting pilgrims. Some scholars have identified it with the synagogue of the freedmen, former slaves in the Roman Empire, mentioned in Acts chapter 6, verse 9. End of quote. The actual building to which the plaque bearing the Theodotus inscription belonged has not been found. And I would say that the plaque being a heavy limestone slab and the inscription being rather deeply inscribed, the, the plaque survived, but the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in the three revolts, the, 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 um, the 65 through 70 AD revolt, and then later the Machidus Revolt and the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, the destruction of Jerusalem was pretty damn complete. So I wouldn't expect the building to be found. Maybe it's foundation. And then it would be hard to identify. That the inscription was in Greek is another indication of the prevalent use of Greek in Jerusalem at the time, where Greek is found even on all the coins of Herod, right? However, that the two synagogues are connected is merely educated speculation. The Theodotus inscription is interesting. It, it gives us an, some insight into the life at the time. However, it's not necessarily from the synagogue of the freedmen. It's speculated by some academics. That the assembly hall here in Acts chapter 6 was called of the freedmen, or as the King James Version has it, of the libertines, indicates that those who founded it or their ancestors were Judeans who were once enslaved and returned to, returned to Judea when they were granted freedom, a practice which was common in the Greco-Roman world. It was customary for Romans to take as slaves the survivors of such cities as were taken by force. There are examples of that at Jerusalem when it was taken by Pompey. And again, 30 some odd years later, when it was taken by Herod in company with the Roman general Sosius, which is described in Josephus's Wars of the Judeans, Book 1, Chapter 7, Book 1, Chapter 18, and later again, when Titus took the city in 70 AD, 
in Book 6, Chapter 9. Surely these freedmen, at this time, at the time of Christ, were most likely descended from those slaves, those, those Judeans taken as slaves in one of the earlier Roman conquests of Judea by Pompey and then by Herod in company with Sosius. Josephus, while he does not tell us their exact history, often mentions in this very period, in his history of this very period, a class of such freedmen in Judea linking them to Caesar, who had restored many of the honors and privileges to Jerusalem which had earlier been taken by Pompey. So it makes sense that Pompey would enslave many Judeans, and Caesar, after the defeat of Pompey in his own civil war, would set them free. There is another issue which must be discussed here. That there are some biblical commentators, and I've actually seen academic papers written around this, concerning slavery and, and the New Testament, New Testament attitudes towards slavery. There are some biblical commentators who attempt to connect Saul of Tarsus with this assembly hall of the freedmen. Since Saul is introduced as Stephen is executed, which is described at the end of chapter 7. However, this interpretation seems to miss the point that the counsel to which Stephen is led as described here in verse 12, which we didn't get to yet, is actually the official council of the high priests at the temple, which is fully evident in the first lines of chapter 7. Therefore, Saul may have come into the picture any time after Stephen was taken to the temple, and he is not necessarily connected to this assembly hall. That is more speculation on the part of scholars. Acts chapter 6, verse 11. Then they suborned men, saying that we heard him speaking blasphemous words in regard to Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And coming upon him, they seized him and led him to the council. And false witnesses stood, saying, This man does not stop speaking words against this holy place and the law that they suborned men, as the King James Version also has the word hupobalo, which suggests that these witnesses were instructed privately and perhaps even bribed, and that in any case, their testimony was dishonest. In verse 13, the majority text, and therefore the King James Version, once again has the phrase blasphemous words speaking blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. There are many witnesses who do not have the second occurrence of the word blasphemous, including two ancient papyri and most of the ancient great uncles. In fact, all of the ancient great uncles from the 4th and 5th centuries. The codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Beze, and the 5th century Codex known as 0175, and the majority texts have the holy place, not this holy place. Here, the text of the Christogonian New Testament follows the 4th century Papyrus P8 and the Codices Vaticanus and Ephraim Siri. Whenever the Codices Alexandrinus and Vaticanus are split, 
and especially where there are ancient papyri involved too, it's always a diffi- it's always a difficult decision to make as to which may be the the more correct reading. However, here is another referee or arbiter. The phrase may be interpreted as a reference to Jerusalem. And this, in this instance, I've chosen to follow the, the minority of manuscripts, the papyri, I'm sorry, the 4th century papyri P8 and the Codex Vaticanus, which is also from the 4th century. I chose to follow them because they are consistent with the same reference with the reading in verse 14, where all the Bible manuscripts, all the New Testament manuscripts agree that it says this place and not the place, right? So the context, as well as the antiquity and preponderance of the manuscripts, sometimes has to be the arbiter when you're making a translation. I hope I get those points across. I know they're technical. Many of these differences between the majority text and the ancient manuscripts, which I have pointed out, many of them are rather irrelevant. And even some of the more significant ones do not really compel us to reconsider important matters of doctrine. However, and this is important to realize, that so many differences between the majority text and the most ancient manuscripts exist must be an indication to all Christians that the majority text upon which the King James Version is based is by no means sacrosanct. In truth, it contains many flaws, and some of those flaws are quite significant, such as the last nine verses of the Gospel of Mark, which don't belong in a text such as the last verse of John chapter 7 and the first 11 verses of John chapter 8, the taking of the woman in adultery, right? They're not, in the, they're not in the oldest manuscripts, such as the description of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke, I believe it's chapter 22 or 23, where he cried tears like blood, which fell like clots to the ground. That's not in any of the oldest manuscripts. There were three that bear witness in heaven. John chapter, half of John chapter 5, verse 7, and half of John chapter 5, verse 8. That doesn't belong in any of the oldest manuscripts. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe that's what the three are. It, it supports the Trinitarian position. And that doesn't belong in any of the oldest manuscripts. There's a lot of pericopes that made their way into the majority text over the centuries that appear in the King James. You can't tell me they're inspired by God when they suddenly appear in manuscripts in the 8th and ninth centuries. There are idiots out there, even in identity Christianity, that claim that they do. They're inspired by God because they appear in the English version 1,800 years after the gospel was handed down by the apostles, or, or 1,600 years, or whatever. That's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous position. But when such verses are missing for five or six centuries, and all of a sudden they appear, they're not inspired by God. They're infiltrated by Jews. 
or by fools. They're not inspired by God. That's crazy to think that the English version of the, that the, the Bible is inspired because it's the officially approved version of a particular government in support of a particular church organization which that government controls. Anybody who thinks the King James Version is the inspired word of God is basically a moron. No, I don't apologize for these words. I never will. No English version of the Bible. Not King James, not, not, not the, the, the AV, the ASV, the NRV, the RSV, not the Christogenian New Testament. None of them are sacrosanct. They all need to be consistently inspected and evaluated against the Greek language and the oldest, oldest and most reliable witnesses. Acts chapter 7, verse 14. For we heard him saying that this Yahshua, the Nazarene, shall destroy this place and change the customs which Moses transmitted to us. The testimony that was suborned by these, by these people who brought Stephen to the council. And all those sitting in the council, gazing at him, saw his face as if it were the face of a messenger. The phrase, sitting in the council, refers to the Sanhedrin, the Council of the High Priests, as we shall see at the opening line of Acts chapter 7. A messenger or an angel. The Codex Beze inserts at the end of the sentence the words, standing in their midst. This first report concerning the substance of the testimony of Stephen establishes that Christians at this early time were indeed focused upon one of the more famous of the discourses given by Christ, that which concerned the fate of the temple and Jerusalem, from Matthew chapter 24, where departing Yahshua went from the temple, and his students came forth to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Then he responding said to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, by no means should it be left here a stone upon a stone which shall not be thrown down. Of course, these things were all in fulfillment of that most precise prophecy of the Messiah found in Daniel chapter 9, which the Jews deny unto this very day. And in fact, many Jews vainly deny that Daniel was a prophet at all. The Jews would love to get rid of Daniel. They could twist some of the other prophets, but they'd love to get rid of Daniel, just like they'd love to get rid of Paul. And with this, we shall commence with Acts chapter 7. Then the high priest said, now we are not told this council is the Sanhedrin until this point. We realize it when the high priest is speaking, right? Then the high priest said, so do you hold these things to be thusly? Literally, only if you have these things thusly. The word I for if, 1487, may also be whether, if it marks here a question. And there it's rendered, rendered so here. 
With the presence of the high priest, we see that these men from the assembly hall of the freedmen have taken Stephen to that council which the Jews call the Sanhedrin. The Jews call it the Sanhedrin. It's the official council of the leaders at the temple in Jerusalem. It's the leaders and the elders of the people. The word for council is a Greek word, sunedrion, S-U-N-E-D-R-I-O-N, Strong's number 1482. Sunedrion, it's a Greek word. It literally means a council. The Jewish word Sanhedrin is a Yiddish corruption of that Greek word, which is interesting because the Jews try to separate the idea that they had any influence by the Greeks at all. And that's a lie. When you look at the the most basic... um, Names for things that the Jews refer to within their religious paradigm. Synagogue. Synagogue is a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. If the Hebrews eschewed Greek, as the Jews love to claim today, why do they use a Greek word to describe their solemn assemblies? Why do they do that? Because they're hypocrites, they've always been hypocrites, and they're lying about the Hellenistic, uh, about the Greek influence on Judea in the first century. They're lying about it. Synagogue is a Greek word. It's a Greek compound word. It's synagoge. It comes from three Greek words: soon, which is a preposition which means with, ago which is a verb, which means to bring, to lead, or to gather, and gase, which is a noun, and it means land, ground, soon ago gay, synagogue. It means at the assembly ground. That's what it means. At the gathering place. That's what it means. Soon ago gay. It's a Greek word. I think that's funny. <laughs> Sanhedrin is a Yiddish corruption of Sunedrion, a simple Greek word, compound word, which actually means, like Edrion means a chair or a bench, and Sun means with or together. So it means like together at the bench, right? It, it, it's a council. That's what the word means. That's how it's translated in, in a million Greek writings, council. Sanhedrin, the, the, the two words most important to the Jewish religion, Sanhedrin, synagogue, they're Greek words. The Jews are liars. They lie all the time. It's incredible. Okay, in the apology which follows, Stephen attempts to demonstrate to the council and to the people that the hope of Israel rests upon the promises to Abraham which were perpetuated through Moses to Israel, which had nothing to do with the temple or the works of men's hands, but had everything to do with kinship, with brotherhood, and with the counsel of God that men have perpetually rejected. And that's how I read Stephen's discourse. That's how I would summarize Stephen's discourse and his testimony, which he is about to give, 
which takes, for the most part, most of Chapter 7 of Acts, and we won't get through it all tonight. We'll get into some of it, and we'll finish it next week, Yahweh willing. Verse 2, And he said, Men, brothers, and fathers, listen. Yahweh of effulgence, or the Lord of light, the God of light, I'm sorry, appeared to Abraham, our father, the God of glory, Yahweh of glory, who was in Mesopotamia before when he settled in Karan or Haran. And he said to him, Depart from your land and from your kinsmen and come to the land which I shall show you. Genesis chapter 12 is what's being referred to here. Now Yahweh had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. That word kindred, I'll discuss that word a little later. A little later. Verse 4. Then departing from the land of the Chaldeans, he settled in Karan, or Haran, that Hebrew H may be a CH in other languages. We see that also in, um, in Akkadian very often, the language of the Assyrians. Chaldea is mentioned in inscriptions as early as the annals of the Assyrian king, Asher Nasirpal II, who reigned circa 883 to 859 BC. Earlier documents referred to the same area simply as the Sea Land. And it was adjacent to Elam, an important component of what later became Persia. This late Chaldea was east of the Tigris. It laid on the east bank of the Tigris, east of Mesopotamia, where the ancient city of Ur, from which Abraham was said to have first been called, was located on the west bank of the Euphrates, west of Mesopotamia, precisely opposite this narrow strip of lower Mesopotamia known as the land of Sumer at that time, or at one time. The word Chaldi is the Hebrew word Kasti, Strong's number 3778. The Chaldees of later history possessed what was once Sumer, and the Babylonians of the Israelite kingdom period were actually Chaldeans. As it is evident from throughout the Genesis account, while Abraham was first called by Yahweh in Ur, Ur of the Chaldees, Haran, a city in far northern Syria, in the ancient land of Padanaram, which is often mentioned in the book of Genesis, that was Abraham's ancestral home. Haran is also the same name as one of Abraham's brothers. To continue with verse 4. And there, after the death of his father, he moved him into this land in which you are now settled. And he had not given to him an inheritance in it, nor a footstep. Yet he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his offspring after him, there not being a child with him. Abraham himself was never a king in the land of Canaan. I believe that's what's being implied. However, even before he had a child of his own, the land was promised to his offspring. Verse 5 paraphrases Genesis 17, 8, and I quote, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee 
the land wherein thou art the stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Verse 6. But Yahweh had spoken thusly, that it shall be that his offspring sojourns in a foreign land, and they shall enslave them and mistreat them four hundred years. The Septuagint version of Genesis 15.13 says, And it was said to Abram, Thou shalt surely know that thy seed shall be a sojourner in a land not their own. And they shall enslave them, and afflict them, and humble them four hundred years. Literally, they, meaning the foreigners, shall enslave it, a singular pronoun, meaning the seed or the offspring. The word for seed, sperma, 4690, is singular here. Now, there's a, there are countless Judeo-Christian Bible commentators who insist that because the word Genesis, the word sperma in Genesis 3.16, I'm sorry, in Galatians 3.16, because the word sperma for seed is singular, that it must refer only to Christ, right? There's a million of those commentators, or better, maybe 10 million, who make that insistence. They're all repeating it from the same damn Jew. Here the word seed is singular. And Abraham's singular seed is going to sojourn in a foreign land and be enslaved for 400 years. So I guess Christ alone was enslaved in Egypt, right? That's their reasoning. I mean, it has to apply here. Okay, so I'm being funny. But it shows you the, the, the flawed mentality of the Judeo-Christian commentators. It's just one of thousands of ways to point that out. The word for seed is singular here. And the pronoun is singular also. Yet it clearly and obviously refers to many people being a collective noun. Seed is a collective noun. It has to do with all of one's descendants. It does everywhere else in Scripture, and it does here in Galatians, and here in Acts 7, 6, and in Galatians 3, 16. Now, the 6th century papyrus, P33, and the Codex Beze, which dates to the 5th century, they both had the singular word for seed, and they had no problem using it along with the corresponding plural pronoun, they. And even though we could understand that that's most likely a scribal innovation, it's clear that those, even those later Greeks understood seed to be collective and to refer to a plural entity, even though the word in form is singular, right? Now, regardless of what one may think of the 400 years clause in this statement to Abraham, it is not necessary that this period of time be reckoned as if it referred only to that period of the actual enslavement of Israel in Egypt. 
This is a very common misconception that the Israelites were actually enslaved for the entire 400-year period. As Paul explains in Galatians, it was 430 years from the original Genesis 12 promise to Abraham to the time of the giving of the law to Israel by Yahweh at Mount Sinai, Galatians 3.17. Once it is realized that Moses was only the third generation, right, Moses was only the third generation from Levi. He was the great-grandson of Levi. 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And that Moses was 80 years old when the Exodus began, as attested to in Exodus chapter 7, verse 7. And all of the leaders of the Israelites, which this can be seen easily in the genealogies, all of the leaders of the Israelites, as they are reckoned from the 12 sons of Jacob down to the time of the Exodus, when that reckoning is compared with the genealogies given in the book of Numbers and in Chronicles, are only as many as six or seven generations removed from the 12 sons of Jacob. Once all that is realized, then it is absolutely clear that the time of the actual enslavement of Israel in Egypt was only about 150 to 180 years. That's it. But the time from Yahweh's utterance to Abraham in Genesis 15.3, the 400-year promise, unto the Exodus was indeed 400 years. And therefore, Yahweh had all of that time in consideration. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, Genesis 12.4. That is the beginning of Paul's 430 years. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born, Genesis 21.5. Isaac was 60 years old when Jacob was born, Genesis 25.26. Jacob was 130 years old when he went down to Egypt with his sons, Genesis 47.9. Therefore, we can add 25 the difference between Abraham's 75th year and his 100th year, right, when Isaac was born. We can add 25 and 60, the age of Isaac when Jacob was born, and 130, the age of Jacob when he went to Egypt. That, that adds up to 215 years, right? And that leaves another 215 years for the time from Jacob's going to Egypt unto the giving of the law at Sinai. And that makes perfect sense because Levi goes to Egypt, an adult man. Moses is born three generations later, perhaps 75 years later, perhaps a little longer. And he's 80 years old at the Exodus, right? So 215 years. From the time Jacob goes to Egypt to the time of the giving of the law of Sinai makes perfect sense, especially comparing that to the generations of men as they were born and seeing those of them who left Egypt as described in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers and the genealogies and chronicles.
It's 215 years that Israel is actually in Egypt. That's it. 215 years. Those who cannot imagine how Israel could grow to as many as 2 million people in so short a time may dispute this chronology. How could they get to 2 million people in, 70, in, in 215 years? They are actually only disputing with Scripture because upon examination, these things are indeed substantiated. There were 70 people with Jacob going into Egypt or the more reliable number because it's in the Septuagint and the New Testament, 75. And they were joined there by the family of Joseph. If we start with 35 married couples without doing a lengthy examination as to exactly how many married couples there could have been at the time, I'm not going to do that. Let's start with 35 married couples, and, and that's numbers close enough. And each couple has seven children over a 20-year reproductive period. A 20-year reproductive span. Each couple has seven children. Let's assume that's possible. And that's a low number. And that's a relatively short period of time. Many women are reproductive for as long as 35 years, if you count from the time they're 16 to the time they're 51. And it's possible for a woman to have children at 50. It happens all the time. It happens today. All the time. Women having children in their late 40s. So if every couple has seven children over a 20-year period, they would multiply three and a half times every generation. Here are the results. After one generation in 20 years, the 70 people would be 245. I'm rounding down in certain places as I, as I present this. After two generations in 40 years, they would be 857. After three generations in 60 years, they would be 3,001 point something. After four generations in 80 years, they would be 10,504. After five generations in 100 years, they would be 36,765. After six generations in 120 years, they would be 128,677. After seven generations in 140 years, they would be 450,371 people. After eight generations in 160 years, they would be 1,576,299 people. Eight generations. 160 years. From the time of Mount Sinai, <clears throat> under the numbering of the children of, of Israel on the plains of Moab, it was another 40 years wandering in the desert. So it's very possible in 215 years for them to attain 2 million people. And then another 40 years. And on the plains of Moab, in Numbers chapter 3, the children of Israel were numbered to have just over 600,000 men of age eligible for war. Yes, I added it up. 
it's in the marginal notes of my Bible. I added it up about 15 years ago. It's just over 600,000 in Numbers chapter 3. Men eligible of age, eligible for war. Under the grace of God, this is a very plausible figure even in such a short time, which was really 255 years. There were certainly many more than what we have illustrated here, seeing that even before the Exodus, many Israelites had already departed from Egypt by sea. Exodus 1.7 And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty and the land was filled with them. Acts 7, verse 7. And the nation in which they shall be enslaved, I shall judge, says Yahweh, the plagues of Egypt. And after these things, they shall depart, and they shall serve me in this place. <laughs> While Stephen is clearly referring to Genesis fifteen fourteen, in our modern Bibles, the passage reads somewhat differently, where it says, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. That's the King James Version. Quite different than what Stephen tells us. And they shall serve me in this place, the King James in Genesis fifteen fourteen, which Stephen is clearly, clearly quoting from, says, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. In this case, the Septuagint corroborates the King James Version and the Masoretic text. That's a rare case, but it's true here. But all of the New Testament manuscripts of Acts are consistent in their readings with the way the King James Version here reads Acts chapter 7, verse 7. They shall serve me in this place. Josephus' condensation of this part of Genesis is found in Antiquities, Book 1, from line 185. It's Book 1, Chapter 10, Part 3. And that supports neither version. I'm going to read it. After which, before he built his altar, referring to Abraham, before he built his altar, where the birds of prey flew about as desirous of blood, a divine voice came to him, declaring, that their neighbors would be grievous to his posterity when they should be in Egypt for 400 years, during which time they should be afflicted, but afterward should overcome their enemies. Josephus seems to have taken it that they were in Egypt for 400 years, but that's not true. And but afterward they should overcome their enemies, should conquer the Canaanites in war and possess themselves of their land and of their cities. So Josephus doesn't agree with Stephen's version of Genesis 15:14 found in Acts chapter 7, or with the Septuagint and Masoretic text versions. But in this case, the Septuagint and the Masoretic text agree, and they're contrary to what it says in Acts. So, I mean, some things just will never be sorted out, because the Dead Sea Scrolls is missing this chapter of Genesis entirely. In the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, 
I didn't check the Genesis Apocryphon. Acts chapter 7, verse 8. And he gave to him the covenant of circumcision, and thus he begot Isaac, and he circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac Jacob, and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. While many doubters, even in Christian Israel identity, have taken to the idea that circumcision was a later innovation of wicked people, and I've heard this from a lot of people, and, and it's kind of sad because it shows they really didn't pay attention to Scripture. It is quite certain that neither Stephen, as we see recorded here in Acts, nor John, nor Paul had any such imagining. According to the New Testament, circumcision, regardless of how bad we want to think the practice is, circumcision was indeed a part of the Abrahamic and Levitical covenants. It was indeed demanded by God. John chapter 7, the words of Christ. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision. And John makes a parenthetical statement. Not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. John is corroborating this passage in Acts. And ye on a Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on a Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, the law of Moses, the words of Christ. Are you angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Christ testifies that circumcision was part of the Abrahamic and Levitical covenants. Verse 9, And the patriarchs, being jealous of Joseph, gave him up to Egypt. Yet Yahweh was with him and delivered him from all of his afflictions and gave to him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he appointed him governor over Egypt and over his whole house. Of course, one of the holy grails of archaeology is to find out what Joseph's Egyptian name was, right? I don't think we'll ever find it out. It can be speculated on. And he appointed him governor over Egypt and over his whole house. Then came a famine over the whole of Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers did not find food. In verse 10, the Codex Alexandrinus wants the words to him. That's immaterial, but it's noted. In verse 11, the majority text has the whole land of Egypt, made him governor over the whole land of Egypt. That's also an innovation. The New Testament testimony confirms our trust in the general narrative of the books of the Old Testament. There's no doubt. No matter what you want to think about them. But Jacob, hearing that there was grain in Egypt, sent off our fathers the first time. Then with the second time, Joseph was recognized by his brethren. And the family of Joseph was made known to Pharaoh. And Joseph, sending, called for Jacob his father and all the kinsmen with 75 souls. Rather than the phrase recognized by, from the Greek word, anagnorizomahi, 319. The codices Alexandrinus and Vaticus, Vaticanus have a word which can be rendered made known to, from the Greek word norizo. 
The text of the Christogenian New Testament agrees with the Codices Sinaiticus, Ephraimi, Siri, Beze, and the majority text, and also with the Septuagint Greek of Genesis 45.1, which, which Stephen is citing here. Both the King James Version and Branton and his Septuagint translated the word as made known to regardless. All of the New Testament texts agree with the Septuagint version of Genesis 46.27 and not with the Masoretic text where the number of Jacob's family are 75 and not 70. Verse 15. And Jacob went down into Egypt. The Codex Vaticanus wants those words into Egypt. And he died and our fathers and they were moved to Sukkim and buried in the tomb which Abraham bought for a price of silver from the sons of Emor in Sukkim. I think that the Hebrew, that the King James English says Shechem there, I believe. Then just as the time approached of the promise which Yahweh had promised to Abraham, the people grew and were multiplied in Egypt until there stood another king over Egypt who had not known Joseph. In verse 17, the majority text has a word, hamnuo, or sworn. Therefore, we see sworn in the King James Bible rather than Yahweh had promised to Abraham. The text, which says promised in the Christogenian New Testament, follows the Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, Ephraim, Siri. They have the word homologeo. However, the third century papyrus P45 in the Codex Beze, and it's odd that the Codex Beze in this case agrees with such an ancient papyrus, they both have a synonym for homologeo, Epigello, which would also be rendered as promised. The third century papyrus P45, the Codex Beze, and the majority text all want the words over Egypt in verse 18, which appear in all of the other ancient uncles. Verse 19, he dealing craftily with our race, mistreated the fathers, causing their infants to be exposed for which not to be produced alive. The Christogenian New Testament translation is as literal as I could make it, where every Greek word is rendered is represented in English, and where I've added as few words as possible. Some people don't like that technique, but that's tough. I don't regret using that technique. The Greek word, katasophizo, appears only here in the New Testament. It's to deal craftily with. In another context, it may be to outwit. The NA 27, following the codices Alexandrinus, Ephraim, Syria, and the majority text has our fathers. Our is wanting in the, in, in the older uncles, the codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and the Beze. The word race here is from the word genos, 
dealing craftily with our race. He mistreated the fathers. Again, the King James Version, which so often in other places renders genos as generation, has it as kindred here. In the King James Version, the word kindred, at both Acts chapter 7, verse 3, and Acts 7, 14, is from the Greek word sugenia, or sugenia, Strong's 47:72. Sugenia properly refers to closer relations, and in the Christogenia New Testament, it's kinsmen in both places. Sugenia are the people in your race who are close to you, who are in company with you, who are together with you. Your, your, your brothers, sisters, perhaps your cousins, uncles, aunts, they are your suganaya, your parents and your children, of course. They're kinsmen. In the King James Version, the word kindred, at both Acts 7.13 and 7.19, is from genos, a term which should be applied more widely in contrast to suganaya. In the context of verse 14, I've rendered it family because it refers to the family of Joseph. However, properly, it may have been race, the race of Joseph, his brothers, his fathers, his brother's children, his brother's wives. Here in this verse, it is race in the Christogenian New Testament, Acts 7, 19. And clearly in this context, it should be race. It's unfortunate, however, that here, as well as in Acts chapter 4, verse 6, in reference to the race of the high priest, and four times here in Acts chapter 7, the King James Version consistently fails to make any distinguishment between the words Suganaya and Genos. If Suganaya is your family, your kindred, your kinsmen, Genos is the wider, more general version of that. Genos has to be your race. It too cannot be your kindred. Both words shouldn't be translated kindred. The King James translated both words here as kindred four times. The exposure of children, which we see in Egypt. The exposure of children figures greatly in early Greek literature. It does. It's very common in, in the ancient epic poets, the tragic poets, from the 7th, 6th, and 5th centuries B.C. The Greeks were said to have often willingly exposed unwanted children, or children that they could not afford, especially female infants. Doing this supposedly left their consciences unburdened. It's a form of abortion, right? Post-birth abortion. It's murder. There's no doubt it's murder. But exposing the children supposedly left the consciences, the consciences of the Greeks unburdened, supposing that the exposure of an infant left the fate of that infant in the hands of the gods. 
One famous story retold by Herodotus was that the great Persian king Cyrus was exposed when he was an infant at the demand of his grandfather, Astyages, the king of the Medes. Cyrus survived his exposure by being taken in by a farmer, I believe. It's been a while since I read the story. Only to learn of his real identity later on in life and claim his inheritance when he came to his manhood and became the king of Persia. Concerning the exposure of children, Stephen refers to the account provided in Exodus chapter 1, and I'll read from verse 15. And the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shiprah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, bursting stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. The Pharaoh of the Exodus, I would like to discuss that briefly. Regardless of the mainstream academic contentions over the Pharaoh and the time of the Exodus, which generally place it in the 19th dynasty and at the time of Ramses, which is utterly ridiculous, both the testimony of Josephus and an honest study of the chronology of the period tells us that an 18th dynasty Pharaoh named Tuthmos or Thutmos, whom Josephus calls Tethmosis, was the pharaoh of the Exodus, there's no doubt. There were four pharaohs by this name, and they were all related. Thutmose I and Thutmose II were the third and fourth pharaohs of this dynasty. Hatshepsut, a woman, was the fifth. Clifton Emmeheiser has written on this at great length in an entire series he did, walking step-by-step with Joseph through Egypt. I believe it starts with his Watchman's Teaching Letter number 33, sometime back in 2000 or 2001. Hatshepsut was fifth, and it is very likely she who drew Moses out of the water as a young girl, thereby giving him a form of her family name. You know, there's a lot of fools, Christian commentators, universities, Hebrew scholars, grown men, who claim that Moses means to draw out the wa- to draw out of the water. That's just crazy. The girl gave Moses her family name because she drew him out of the water, and she adopted him. It's only natural she'd give him her family name, Moses. The sixth and eighth pharaohs of the 18th dynasty were Thutmose III, or Tuthmose III, 
and Tuthmosis four. The death of one more man named Thutmose, who never became a pharaoh, led to the ascension of his brother, Akhenaten, also known as Amenhotep. It was during the reign of Akhenaten that the Amarna letters were written. The Amarna letters are archaeological relics, letters written to Akhenaten by the various kings of the land of Canaan. And in them, it is apparent that they had beseeched him for protection from the invading Hebrews. All of this chronology falls right into place, falls into place rather well. Thutmose III was a bastard. He was the son of a Hurrian, a Hurrian or a Horite in the Bible, a branch of the Canaanites. He was the son of a Hurrian wife of Thutmose II. The female, Hatshepsut, his half-sister, had kept him from the throne until her death for 20-something years. He would have been the pharaoh who knew not Joseph. He would have been the pharaoh who enslaved Israel. He ruled Egypt for nearly 55 years from circa 1479 B.C. to 1424 B.C. The Exodus was most likely towards the end of this period. When Akhenaten came to rule, I believe it was 60, 70 years later, it was sometime later, in the middle of the next century, in the middle of the 14th century B.C., the Amarna letters are written, and the kings of Canaan seek relief from the invading Hebrews. It all falls right into place. At that time, Moses was born and was favored by Yahweh, verse 20, who was raised in the house of his father. Three months. But upon his being exposed, he was taken up by the daughter of Pharaoh, and he was raised up as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was a prince in the Pharaoh's household, as Paul also indicates in Hebrews. I believe it's chapter 11. And was powerful in his words and deeds. Now, in reference to this word favored, Moses was born and was favored by Yahweh, verse 20. That word is a rare word in, in the New Testament. It's estias. And it literally means of the town. Like the Latin word urbanus, it means townbred, polite, courteous, refined, elegant, pretty, pretty, witty, clever. That's the intermediate Greek-English lexicon from Liddell and Scott based on their seventh edition which was my primary reference for the Christianity New Testament. In context, again in Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, the word is handsome. Paul also used the same word, estias, in reference to Moses. Handsome is our masculine counterpart for pretty. Here the word is used in a context where I can only write favored in spite of having no direct lexical support. 
The ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon adds popular to the word's definition, which seems to support my rendering here. The word only occurs in the New Testament on these two occasions in reference to Moses, Estias. Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. And there went a man of the house of Levi, and took the wife and daughter of Levi, and a woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Stephen said, three months in the house of his father, right? And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes, and daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein, and she laid it. In the flags by the river's brink, and his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maiden to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister, the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother, unsuspecting that it was the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it, and the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. She adopted Moses. And she called his name Moses, she said, and she said, because I drew him out of the water. She adopted him and gave him her family name. And the daughter of Pharaoh called his name Moses, because that was ostensibly a form of her own family name. And she is the one who found and adopted him. The last pharaoh of the 17th Egyptian dynasty was Kamos, or Kamosis. The first pharaoh of the 18th Egyptian dynasty was Amos, the brother of Kamos. From him, from Amos, there were several, at least five descendants over at least four generations, with the name Tutmos. Four of them were pharaohs. And this was also the family of Hatshepsut. Who was certainly this very princess. And for 20 years, 21 years possibly, she was a pharaoh herself. The third, Tuthmos, was ostensibly the pharaoh of the Exodus. It may have been his successor, but I believe it was Tuthmos III. I want to talk about one more thing off the cuff before I close this program. There are many scoffers who claim that the Book of Nezar II was also said to have been placed in an ark among the bulrushes as an infant. And that's true. But that doesn't discredit this account one whit. The unsuspecting might wonder 
But when you understand that Nebuchadnezzar II wasn't born until the end of the 7th century B.C., 800 years after Moses, the truth is that the Babylonians probably copied the story from the Hebrews. Because the Hebrew Old Testament was quite widely disseminated by that time. The Greeks read it all the time. Their philosophies prove it. Thank you for listening. We will leave off here with Acts chapter 7, and Yahweh willing, pick up at this point next week, presenting Acts chapters 7 and 8, if I could get through them in one night. Praise Yahweh, and good night.